time, seven and a half hours, and that indeed was as good an introduction as any to the current state of chassis in Russia. Our flight was scheduled to go from Dublin to St. Petersburg to Moscow, but once the pilot of our Tupolev jet made out that there were no passengers aboard for St. Petersburg, the second city of Russia, he went direct to Moscow. Most pilots live in Moscow, and like anybody else, if there is no compelling reason to stay at work, they want to go home. Also, most are military pilots, so flying Aeroflot is a bit more exciting than your usual civilian airline. With that combination, it wasn't surprising to arrive three hours ahead of schedule, which naturally enough threw out the meeting time of our welcoming party. But God, it seems, never closes down one flight path without opening up another. Instead of the official party at Cheremetchevo, we met Sean McGrath from County Clare. Like so many of the Irish in Moscow, he had gone out with Air Rienta to work in the duty-free at Moscow Airport and was now in business on his own. And like so many of the Irish, he had a deep identification with Russian history. On the way in from the airport, we noticed one monument, a sculpture of red barricades with fading flowers. That's where Hitler's armies had been stopped outside Moscow in the great war against fascism at the cost of 20 million Soviet lives. Sean showed us another. We're walking down uh, Kutusovsky Prospect at the moment. At the end of the street, uh, we will come to the Arc de Triomphe, which was built uh, as a memorial to Napoleon's invasion of Russia. It is the area where Napoleon reached before he was stopped by the weather. Uh, this street uh, is a street, a very, very wide boulevard. Uh, it has very, very ornate buildings. There are buildings which were built in the Stalin era between 1925 and 1940. They're uh, recognised by their ornate facades and the, each building will have the commonest logo of the hammer and sickle somewhere on it. Uh, they're in the Italian style and they're known as the best uh, types of buildings that are in Moscow, the best type of homes. And normally those homes were occupied by the chosen people from uh, the party and the apparatchiks, as they're called. Those houses were specially for those people. There is a difference between uh, the Stalinist architecture and the Khrushchevian architecture. There's a marked difference between all the different leaders. Stalin built uh, ornate buildings, as we said, big ornate buildings. Uh, Khrushchev, being a countryman, and this is what the people say, he built no building taller than five storeys. Uh, then, in Brezhnev's era, when there was a terrible housing shortage, it was then that we got all the skyscrapers and the small box-type accommodation. Now, what about uh, the people who live here? I noticed that in the apartments, apartment block after apartment block after apartment block, Ballymun magnified to the power of a thousand or so, they have a lot of animals, dogs and so on. Why is this? They have indeed, and basically how this has happened, and in the Stalin times, when they took the people off the land, and they decided to collectivise the farms, tip the workers and the families, uprooted them forcefully from their homes in the country and put them into the city. And I have seen situations where people have raised pigs and chickens on their balconies. And it's, you, on their balconies, in the morning you can hear cocks crowing on the balconies. Because the people are still country people at heart and now 
again and it's great to see it that on the weekends in the summertime the city is deserted everybody are going back to their own little datches in the country and their own little places and they're sowing their vegetables and doing their crops again as they did 50 years ago uh, and it's still the country people basically did collectivism fail then it has failed completely completely it has failed and now it's proved if you come and we had situations we've seen in the autumn time in the harvest time beautiful fields of potatoes they haven't the technology or the people to harvest them and they reckon that even of the grain crop that 70 percent of it is destroyed because of lack of technology and lack of labor and machinery to harvest it what was the theory behind the collectivism well it's it's the commonest theory again it comes back to the same thing that the land should belong to everybody, to the people. And you know, we say about the, and they say about the communist system, nobody worked or nobody was paid. So the whole system completely, the central planning, when you had somebody in Moscow planning what somebody in St. Petersburg should be sowing in their, in their fields and what they should be doing, and the whole system just didn't work. The extent to which it didn't work can be seen in the relentless queues for food and the impact of Western consumerism. Since Gorbachev's perestroika and glasnost, restructuring and openness, the once despised Western capitalist has been invited in. There were 9,000 foreign companies at the last count in joint ventures with Soviet interests. Now the queues outside McDonald's burgers are longer than the queues outside Lenin's tomb, and further along, a giant pizza hut on stilts breaks the classical line of a stucco building. It all looks like a piece of leftover from a film set. Even the famed Goom department store has succumbed to window displays. Nothing is more American than Levi's. This is what the sign said in the window. Now, the thing about Russia and about the Russian people, they are very, very uh, conscious of anything that comes from America, be it Levi's, be it a pack of Marlborough. As I said, we're looking in the window here, and we can see a sign that says, Authorised Dealer for Levi's. Uh, Levi's, being American, is thing to have. Everybody, every Russian wants something American. Be it Levi's, be it Marlboro cigarettes, whatever. Once it's American, they think it's the thing to have. And three, four years ago, if you were walking down the street with a pair of Levi's on you, you would be stopped and asked to sell them. They were so popular. But now, all those things are available. Uh, you have a lot of those little kiosks, all those little shops that have sprung up. And what has happened is that uh, Russian entrepreneurs, if you call them that, they go to places like China and Korea with suitcases. They will fill their suitcase with products and bring it back. And they sell them through their kiosks. And they're all the time going. They're bringing with them things like caviar, vodka, and they're trading that for product to bring back and sell in their little kiosks. So with the, with the collapse of socialism, the victory of capitalism, which is market forces, Moscow and Russia seems to have devolved back into basic trading. Exactly, it has devolved back into basic trading. That's the way it is now. In, in the, and even now, which is a very unusual thing, where you have three or four kiosks lining beside each other, they're actually competing now and they're doing price cuts and all this type of thing. And they've learned very, very quickly about all this type of thing. But you will see, and I reckon myself, in the next 12 months or so, that all those kiosks will be moved back into the shops because there are so many of them, there's at least 12,000 of those little kiosks in Moscow. And they're here today, they're someplace else tomorrow. They're all vying for the best locations. And when you visit Arabat Street later, you will see the 
outside the Irish house, the Irish supermarket, this is lined with kiosks. And what they're actually doing is, if they have dollars, they will go in and spend two dollars and buy two litres of coke, and take it out and sell it in their kiosk and make 100% profit in rupees. This is what's happening, and you will see all the products that are in the Irish house, you will see them outside in the kiosks also be it bananas or be it pork or whatever and it is. And why don't people shop in the Irish house? Because they, they, the normal Russian doesn't have dollars, doesn't have currency. Uh, so they're and buying in dollars. They're buying in dollars and selling, selling in, in rupees. At a profit out. At a profit of at least A distance 100%. of 50 yards 50 and they make yards. a profit on 50 yards and a currency system. Exactly. We're coming towards the end of New Arabat Street. New Arabat Street, which is formerly known as Kalinin Prospect, Kalinin Avenue, until the revolution on the 19th of August when they removed Kalinin from the street and it's now known as New Arabat Street. As we come to the end of the Arabat Street, we see shamrocks. Shamrocks in Moscow is unusual. And we come to the Arabat Irish House. It's a supermarket and the shamrock bar. And if you look and you see St. George and the shamrock together, you could say St. Patrick and St. George have been married. St. George being the patron saint. St. George being the patron saint of Gorgi, who is the patron saint of, of uh, Russia. Now, uh, we're going in here. Presumably, uh, Muscovites and natives can come in here as well. Anybody can come in here now. It's an open thing. This is the situation. We'll go to the, what we call the Shamrock Bar. Here, it's uh, an international bar mm. where you would have Russians and Vietnamese and Japanese and English and Irish, everybody enjoying a pint of Guinness or a toasted sandwich together. You know, you can feel the air conditioning when you come from the street where it's at least 30 degrees at 6 o'clock in the evening. It's sunstruck weather, really. And it's cleaner uh, than any place I've been in so far. And as we come up the steps here, we're into really the kind of modern supermarket you'd expect to see in any uh, Irish city. In any Irish city or indeed in any American city or in any English city, you'll find a shop that's crammed full of the best of Irish goods and the best of international goods. The Shamrock Bar is quite unique, and Russians might be forgiven for imagining that all Irish bars have good wood decor, tiled floors, and a large supermarket adjoining, wherein one might purchase videos, washing machines, cameras, and an exotic range of food. This Shamrock Bar, or Bazaar, is run by Oriente with Soviet partners. It's one of many such joint efforts in Moscow, and is overseen by Damien Gibbons, project director for Oriente. Well, the title involves looking around for new opportunities for Oriente International, both here in Moscow and in its environs, and then also um, looking after the current projects that we have under hand. At the moment, we're developing a project, a complex next door, which will house between 8 and 10 retail units, and we'll be opening up a bar that will be about four times bigger than the bar we currently have here. We're also operating a bread shop down the road on Kalininsky Prospect, uh, which is selling for rubles. So again, the brief there would be to develop it to get a greater, a bit of longer life into the bread, because bread here at the moment lacks the preservatives and therefore only lasts about one or two days. So the shelf life is, is not long in comparison with what we're used to at home. What was involved in upgrading the quality of Soviet bread here to the Irish supermarket? 
Well, through the Irish supermarket, we've really been um, working with the Australian bread company and buying our bread off those. Um, they seem to have got the mix pretty much similar to what it is at home. And the shelf life is about five days, which again is quite similar. Is it imported from Australia to here? It's not. It's a joint venture situated in Moscow. It's baked here. Yeah, bread is baked here. All the ingredients for the bread are sourced here. The Australian company um, have gone into a joint venture with Moscow-based people, and what they're doing is they've used personnel from Australia, brought them over to train local people on the ground <coughs> into the production of bread. Now, we're in the supermarket here, and it's clearly a revelation and a revolution for Soviet shoppers, presumably mainly middle class, to come here and buy uh, Senio, televisions, cameras, camcorders, all kinds of watches and the kind of produce which really you don't see anywhere else in Moscow. When the shop opened up at first we thought that we'd be gearing primarily for the foreign community that's here in Moscow. It numbers about 80,000 at the moment and we thought that that would be our main customer. Our customer base in actual fact is about 75% Russian and about 25% foreign. So we completely got it the wrong way around but it, it's something that has evolved to this percentage at the start it was mainly the expat community that came in and it has changed over a period of time to the percentages that we've just mentioned you have what eight uh, checkout bays here we have 14 in total in the supermarket in what you see here there's six and then there's six next door in the non-food section and there's two inside in the bar and what are you selling to the Moscow citizen that is changing his and her life? Everything. It's not what we're selling, it's more what's available. Um, down through the years, it's been a lack of availability of products that has really necessitated them um, either doing without or having to go far afield to look for it. What we've done is brought anything that's available in a Western-style supermarket and shopping complex into the location. We're standing now in the food section, which has everything from liquor, tobacco, frozen food, fresh fruit, fresh um, fruits, vegetables. I mean, everything that you'd see in a Quinsworth at home is here. And they love it. I mean, they're pulling here. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. What, what is your turnover per week, per month, per year? We don't, we don't divulge figures, but all that we can say is that of our weekly turnover, about 45% of it comes from the food section and the balance from the electronics and the fashions. And the turnover is substantial for the size of the shop. And you're making a complete indent on the living standards of Muscovites. We are. We are. Well, we'd like to think that we are, and then we're putting a lot back into the community uh, through our involvement with the gastronome downstairs where we invested over half a million dollars to, to put in a, a total specialised butchery for them and brought out people from Ireland to train the personnel down there. Hello, how are you? It's not uh, that I, I'm telling about, it's very high quality, not uh, because uh, I'm working here. I know I visited lots of shops in Moscow and not in everyone the quality of goods is as high as we have. It's really very good. Truly a cosmopolitan bar in a city where such meeting places are limited, the Shamrock in New Albert has taken on the flavour of what the Ritz in Paris must have been like after the liberation. Diplomats from several embassies, journalists and businessmen, and the odd retired spy or two take a break from domestic shopping. It is the meeting place for many of Moscow's expatriate community, now dovetailed into the melting pot of change, an oasis of plenty in a desert of shortages.
I think it's one of the few places in Moscow that you can go and you interact with people that are, you know, from the West. And it gives you kind of a comfort, you know, because if you're here and you're only interacting with Russian people, then you get really uncomfortable. You get really like, well, where am I at and, and all that. But as long as you can interact with people that kind of have the same thought patterns that you have, the same value systems that you do, then it's okay to live here. You know? But once you get out of, the, out of that pattern for a length of time, then you get really nervous, you get really homesick. So I think the Shamrock Bar for people that live here is kind of a home away from home. Back, it's to, the, a place, back to the womb, Rob. Yeah, it's a place to come and be comfortable. Seamus Martin, Irish Times correspondent in Moscow, is an occasional habitué, but lives over on the other side of the city. He took me around the Tagansky market, an open-air market with a medieval mix of many races, fruits and products. This is the basic reality. This is how most Muscovites live and eat and forage. For nothing, Not for nothing. How would you uh, place this market now compared to the Arbat? Oh, this is much more Russian market. The Arbat market is for tourists, really. Uh, as you can see here, people are selling and buying fruit, vegetables, mainly. But the other end of this market, you, you'll find other things and you really won't know what's there until you go down. There could be anything on sale. Uh, sets of china, cutlery, perhaps uh, shower units. Anything that just becomes available is sold as soon as it becomes available. Here you'll see uh, some tools, telephones, uh, voltmeter, Wellingtons, boots again, yeah. boots, uh, you name it. As I say, anything that there's rolls of wallpaper here, a shower unit, berries, cloud berries, yeah, they're lovely. I'll, uh, I'll just add over here now, there's tomatoes, let's see if they're any. That's uh, 80 rubles for a kilo of tomatoes there. Uh, How does that compare to Dublin? Uh, it's about 80 rubles is about 60 pence. Uh, so that's for a kilo, so about 30 pence a pound. Potatoes here, for example, are probably more uh, expensive than they are in Ireland. I bought some yesterday, there were 70 rubles a kilo, which works out, I suppose, at about uh, 30 pence a pound. Cigarettes there now, we, we heard of the Marlborough economy here, but in fact cigarettes are reasonably cheap. There's yeah. Camel selling at 100, 100 which That's is right, yeah. about 50p for a pack of uh, 20. That's right, and um, Winston is 120, that's about 60p, yeah. Which, in fact, uh, is much cheaper. It's um, three... Oh, it'd be much, much cheaper. Yeah, much I, I, cheaper. I think cigarettes are over two pounds a packet yeah, at yeah, home, yeah, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's toys, helicopters, yeah. guns, tanks. Tanks with the red star of the old mighty Soviet army, which barely exists now. Where does all this now fit into uh, the economy collapsing in on itself, as it seems here? I mean, well, you see, people have to sell something in order to survive. There's a woman there, for example, who's a very respectable-looking elderly woman standing there with a bottle of vodka. 
and it appears to be the only thing that she has to sell. Uh, she looks as if she's a pensioner, and she would probably be on about, I suppose, about 500 rubles a month, uh, which is about £2.50. Now, there's no way that she can go and buy tomatoes at 80 rubles a kilo when she's on 500 rubles a month. So she's out, she got vodka somewhere, uh, and she's selling it. Bananas over there is something that we didn't see for a very long time here. Now they're fairly common sight. Peppers are in now from the south, green peppers. This market now, as you can see, is absolutely full of produce. In terms of the attempt at the coup and in terms of Yeltsin's taking over from Gorbachev, how is life, do you think, for most Soviet people? Well, one person put it very well to me, I thought, that when he said that, uh, well, now we can open our mouths whenever we want to, but we have nothing to put in them. Uh, it's not quite as bad as that, but for certainly for older people, for pensioners, it's a very difficult life. And I'd say for most workers now at the moment, uh, even the miners in Siberia who are on 20,000 rubles a month, which is by far the highest wages in Russia, uh, they haven't been paid since last March. And it's an indication of the passivity of the Russian people as well, in that I'm quite sure that if there was a major industry in Ireland where the workers hadn't been paid since last March, you'd hear a lot about it. But the miners haven't gone on strike. It, it seemed uh, to us walking around uh, as visitors that everything is in a state of flux. Everything is dealable with from women to cigarettes to boots to red army yes. equipment. Yeah. There were even two Italians, uh, call, or two sorry, Russians caught in Italy recently with the consignment of wet weapons grade plutonium which they were trying to sell. Now this is an extraordinary dovetailing in of all of the great ideologies and the great uh, things that terrorised the West for years. Where do you see Russia now in terms of its future? Do you think it can cope? Well, Russia has coped with much more severe things than this. If you talk to people in Leningrad about how hard up they are at the moment, the old people will say, you know, we were in the siege, we ate rats, and we survived. And Russia's history is such that it's hard to imagine anything else but the Russians surviving. They're, they're, they're geared to surviving this kind uh -huh. of thing, yeah. It's almost ready-made for their own survival. Absolutely, yeah. Overall, if you had to be asked or come down on a side of uh, saying, are people better off? Are they better off post-Garbiter? I would say, as far as basic uh, consumer goods are concerned, they're probably a little bit worse off in that they now see all this stuff and as I said before this market is absolutely abundant but very few of them can buy and if you look at the people going by there they're walking they're looking very few people are buying anything and that has engendered a certain resentment when people can see all this abundance and can't afford to buy it According to the Article 1277 of the USSR Constitution, Vice President of the USSR, Gennady Gennayev, took office from Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev.
So went the decree on the morning of August the 19th, 1991, given by the self-styled, as it called itself, the newly created Federal State of Emergency Committee. Gorbachev, in whom such Western hopes had reposed, was under house arrest in his dacha in the Crimea. Tanks and armoured columns ringed the Russian Parliament. The free world held its breath, while in Moscow, scene of so many revolutions and putsches, Boris Yeltsin refused to accede to the demands of the conspiracies. The spectre of Stalin and mass murder rose over the city. 19th of August, 1991. Well, the first I knew about it was at 7 o'clock on the Monday morning when my landlord knocked on my door and informed me that Gorbachev had resigned. This was the first information people had got. Now, he was very, very happy because we always had this friendly argument that he reckoned that uh, Gorbachev wasn't doing enough and all the Russian people had the same thing. They expected miracles to happen overnight. Now, after 74 years of stagnation, obviously this is not possible. But they were looking, they were taking Poland as a role model, and they reckoned that everything in Poland after 12 months was beautiful and happy, which was, wasn't completely true. But anyway, uh, he told me that morning that uh, Gorbachev had resigned, and I left for work at 8 o'clock. Suddenly, when I came on the streets, uh, there was tanks, there was army cars, there was everything, and I just didn't know what exactly was happening. Nobody knew at this stage. So I drove to work, and I drove via the ring road. I had to travel maybe 25 kilometres, and every inch of that road was packed with armoured cars and tanks. The city was completely ringed in. As the day developed, uh, I got a telephone call from Clare FM to ask me uh, about the situation in Moscow. They told me more than I knew myself because there was a complete news blackout on all the radios, television, newspapers, everything was stopped. So that day we came through the city and into this area here, whereas the White House is uh, just behind us here, and behind that again you have the American Embassy and you have the Hotel Ukraine on the left. And this area the people had started to gather here because the leaders of the coup knew that Yeltsin was in the White House and he was the one stumbling block to the coup succeeding, was Yeltsin. So if they could take Yeltsin, they had taken Russia and the coup would have succeeded. So the people started together as the news spread, young people, old people, grandmothers, and they started to erect barricades during the day. Here there was a building site with all the concrete slabs and everything and built wooden barricades and people came from their homes with bricks in their bags. Old women came with bricks and they built up a huge barricade and it developed into the night time. I was also frightened for the simple reason that I had spent a lot of money developing a business here and we felt that if this situation had happened, all the foreigners were out. But as Tuesday and developed, we started getting, we found a guy who had CNN television and we used to all gather there. Naturally, we closed down, we didn't work and we used to gather there in the morning and all day we'd watch CNN and see what was happening. So as it developed, uh, by Tuesday evening, I think everybody felt that the coup wasn't going to succeed. After the whole thing had finished and the people left the barricades, people were still coming. There was mountains of flowers where the people were killed and every day people were coming from, they came from all over Russia to visit the White House and it really, it was never known as the White House until this situation happened. The Bailey Dome. The Bailey Dome. Bailey Dome, which is White House. <coughs> you know, when Gorbachev, being General Secretary of the Communist Party, disbanded the Communist Party, that was the finish for him. And, you know, he was then, he was a leader, and the breakup 
you know, the breakup of the Soviet Union happened so quickly after the coup that Gorbachev suddenly found himself as president of the Soviet Union and there was no Soviet Union. So I hope and I really feel that Gorbachev will come back again because I think they need Gorbachev. Uh, Yeltsin is a good man, he knows, he can feel the people obviously better. Gorbachev lost the feel for the people and this is where the ball thing in my, in my opinion, this is what happened. I often think that the person who runs the metro should be put in charge of the country. But uh, telephones don't work, and that's for sure. And in an era where communications are so important, if Russia wants to be part of the world market economy, the very first thing it needs to do is get its telecommunications system into some sort of shape. Uh, not very long ago, I tried to send a fax to Dublin, fax a, a document, and I got through on the 187th attempt, at which stage my blood pressure must have been way up. As high as 127. <laughs> yes. But you can buy an efficient telephone service in Moscow, one that bypasses the antiquated land system and goes straight to satellite. And where can you buy it? Why, in the Shamrock Bar, of course, from Pat O'Dolan of Eura Rentaphone. Thank you very much. We will deliver you. your phone for you tomorrow morning. Thank you very much. Thank you for your business. Hopefully you'll have, they'll be able to make plenty of calls to the States. I hope so. <laughs> I hope there are money-making calls. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Inured to the vagaries of their future, for all that, Moscow families still enjoy an evening out. In the Central, an old Tsarist restaurant, the waiters are still in period dress with bow ties. One has to have a Russian contact to get a booking to eat here. If you ring up, they feign ignorance if you talk in English or American. The old imperial stucco pillars that once listened to Rachmaninoff look down under a high dome of gilded glory. An evening here is a great family occasion with mamushkas and babushkas, and often the child, the centre of attention. But now the musicians in the Central belt out Western pop, though the courses are still lavish. I gave up after six, mainly of dried fish, and there are copious amounts of champagne and caviar, and all for $20 for six persons. Trying to keep the old prices and an old style in a culture that is rapidly going down the flux. The young women dancing here with their partners are svelte, tall and beautiful. The combination of pale skin and dark eyes of their eastern origins is exotic to us Westerners. And they make no secret of their enjoyment in their appearance and themselves and their families. Many Russian women can expect to have up to six abortions by the age of 30. The baby is therefore all the more cherished. In the open market, there's an abundance of prostitution. Contraception is primitive. One newspaper reported that half its female readers, from their teens to early 20s, when asked what career choice they would follow, said, prostitute. Sean McGrath. The situation is that to get anything, unfortunately, in Russia at the moment, the dollar is still the king. There are several ways of earning dollars in Russia, but the easiest way is to prey on the foreign businessmen. Now, at this particular moment, you can have anything in any one week, up to 5,000 businessmen in Moscow that are either doing business at, at the moment or trying to start a business. They will come to the Intourist or they will come to the Hotel Cosmos or any of those places for a drink. They will be approached by a beautiful girl, ask you where you come from, etc. And they are beautiful, they are pure, 
the prostitutes. Not obviously prostitutes like we associate with prostitutes. They don't have that hard, tarty, abused look about them. They don't. For the, it's hard to describe this. It's probably again, it's a new, it's a new thing. And they're coming to the hotels. They're paying the doorman, the security man, some money to go in there. They're paying him again when they're coming out with a client. Uh, they keep themselves. They, I suppose, when you look at Russian girls, they're. I would put them in the mid 70s. How girls in Britain and Ireland, uh, they have very, very high emphasis on makeup, and they're about 10 years behind the fashion. But they, they project a very, very good image. They don't project a dirty image. Um, I don't know how to explain it, but they, they're doing it out of a necessity. Around that, the first part, as we are often told, of a free economy has grown up a criminal fraternity which in one week earlier this year saw 11 gang members murdered. Foreign businessmen are especially vulnerable. Uh, the prostitutes now are controlled by the mafia and the taxi drivers. And each girl has her own taxi driver who will take you, who will take them to their homes. And they wait outside until the client will go home or whatever it is, but it's controlled unfortunately now by the Mafia and there has been instances where foreign businessmen have been kidnapped, have been held to ransom over the past couple of months. Now, the militia are turning a blind eye to the prostitution because most of the militia unfortunately are corrupt also. They're taking bribes with prostitutes and the average prostitute is charging $100 and she's lucky if she's earning $20 from this amount. The various car number plates now. If you take this particular red uh, Starlet that's passing there, it has a registration, a red registration plate, T001. Now, what to do with the, there are three different colours. There's the basic white colour, which is the normal uh, private car. Then you have the yellow number plates, which are for foreign companies, for joint ventures, etc. And you have the red numbers, which are diplomatic numbers. And each uh, diplomatic mission or each embassy are allocated their own number. Like the American is 004, and the militia or the police will know immediately that this is uh, an embassy car that has diplomatic immunity and they're never, never stopped. And they will immediately know a foreign car, a foreign joint venture, or a foreign company by the yellow number plate. And the normal Russian number plate then is the white. Now, those Abrabrajanis up there who seem to be gesturing to us and looking a bit threatening at us and they're approaching people outside the Goom store, what are, what are they up to? They're looking for somebody to change rubles for them because the situation now at the moment is that all those independent states like Azerbaijan or the Ukraine or whatever it is, there is a possibility they're going to introduce their own currency. And those guys are probably have millions of rubles to spend and they want to trade off their rubles while the going is good because every day there's a new rumour here that the ruble is going to be changed, that something else is going to happen. And it happened last year with the 100 ruble and the 50 ruble note. Within three days they were withdrawn. And many people, people don't keep their money in banks here. They don't trust banks. Most people keep their money at home. And they had the situation that if you brought your money to the bank to have it changed into the new currency, you were going to be asked, where did you get a million rubles? And you had to prove, and it could have been impounded. So most people, many people who were millionaires, ruble millionaires, became paupers overnight because of the monetary exchange. So those guys are trying to buy dollars to either buy something in Moscow and take it back to Azerbaijan or wherever they're called, as opposed to bringing back rubles, which might be no good to them. The dollar is the key, and the Irish and the dollar are everywhere.
Может быть, Талар, ты будешь Талар? Предложили он за 3200. Это хороший Russian Before I go back in uh, September or October, is it maybe? Uh, uh, I just met some Russian people, and uh, I'm sort of standing behind the desk with them, selling, doing, just hanging out for the summer. So you've made friends among the Soviets. Yeah, yeah, very, really nice people actually. Yeah, yeah. Really overcome by hospitality, like it's pretty amazing. They bring you out, and you know, there's no, uh, you know, they've no qualms about bring you out and stuff, it's great. Uh, well, I just met some other people up there at the top of the street, and uh, then they, they brought me out and had dinner in their houses and stuff. Very and nice these people. are traders, these are full-time traders, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I don't know actually where most of the merchandise comes from, but I mean, uh, yeah, th that's how they make their money anyway. Basically, uh, I think uh, uh, people people have learned, been forced to learn very quickly, like uh, these, uh, These guys, like, they seem to have capitalism well sussed. Hi, Mum. <laughs> Hi, Mum, indeed, and many more of them, as the Irish seem settled to make their indent upon Moscow. Some, indeed, have now left their oriented jobs to strike out on their own. They work and live like many Russians. My name is Adis Campbell Safronova. I've been here for three and a half years in Moscow. Well, I live um, in the centre of town in a place called Kutuzis Prospect, which is very, very near the centre. Um, my day-to-day -day life probably starts about 7 o'clock in the morning, which I get up and make my husband breakfast, and then I go to work, which is a full day. Um, I'm retail operations manager for a Canadian joint venture at this moment in time, and my life is very full. It's I deal with Russians all the time. I work, live, talk with them, which helps me improve my Russian. Um, I enjoy my work very, very much. My weekends, generally, my husband and myself and a few of his friends, we go off maybe to the river and have shashlik and a little bit of champagne and whatever. And that's the way we socialize. And it's very, very nice because you get not just to meet other foreigners, but to be involved in the Russian way of life. I've lived and worked in the States and I've lived in other and worked in other countries, but I think Russia is very, very special to me. Um, I just find that I have the total, a total admiration for the Russian people, that um, no matter how much troubles and how many problems they have, and every day is a problem to an average Russian person, um, that they still can smile and laugh at that life. And as much as the Irish sometimes complain about certain things as well, we can still laugh and talk about life and enjoy it.